Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Carol Foster, and my husband Toby and I are the Emeritus Senior Pastors of the Kingdom Vineyard. As I may have mentioned before, Emeritus is Latin for put out to grass. <laughs> but we're still here with no plans to go anywhere until Jim's grin becomes a little too fixed or the look in his eye a little more manic. At that point, we may have to consider our options. As those of you who have been here over the past two weeks will know, we are looking at one John in our current series of Sunday Talks. Two weeks ago, Toby gave us an incisive and helpful overview of this short but very punchy letter. It reminds us of who God is. He is light and truth, righteousness and love. And these attributes make up the framework within which we must decide how we respond to him. Toby also emphasized that this letter was written to enable those listening to it and those reading it to refute false teaching and false teachers and to hold on to truths they already know. It is not, therefore, a rebuke or a pull-your-socks-up rejoinder, but rather an encouragement not to be sidelined. Last week, Jim spoke powerfully about the nature of sin, integrity, and the endless possibility of restoration offered to us by our loving and forgiving God. He described integrity as living with light, not dabbling with darkness, which was beautifully alliterated, James. Jolly well done. And if I may say so, it's certainly a phrase I wish I'd written. He reminds us that one meaning of integrity is being integrated, all of a piece, being whole. And wholeness is something that God desires for all of us. He also talked about how loving and how lovely God is but how, at the same time, our sin can have serious consequences in terms of our relationship with him. He is not to be taken lightly, and his grace to us is not cheap. Both of these talks are available online on the KV website, and I thoroughly recommend listening to them if you haven't already, and possibly revisiting them if you have. There's often something new or an angle of thinking which strikes us afresh when we read or listen again. The passage we're looking at this afternoon is from 1 John, then, which you will find almost at the very back of your Bible. Only three tiny books separate it from Revelation. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 11, and I'll be reading from the NIV, the New International Version Translation. For those of you who like a title, I've called this talk... No room for self-deception. John talks straight. Here we go. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, 
I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. So let's launch straight in. Verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Well, what commands? I promise you, I'm not going to trawl exhaustively through Exodus 20, but even a brief look is revealing. Are we having a brief look in a minute? Yes, okay, here we go. Um, yeah, uh, okay. The first four of the Ten Commandments talk about our attitude to God. He comes first. No other God can come before him. Don't worship images of any created thing in heaven, on earth, or in the sea. That will go down very poorly. Don't take his name in vain. Remember to honor the Sabbath, the day of rest. The rest then deal with our attitude to other people. Perhaps most of us can look at these commands and put a big tick beside the majority. Not murdered anyone. Never stolen stuff. Haven't committed adultery. Don't worship graven images. Put my feet up on the Sabbath. Tick. So how are we doing with the no other God front? How about the God of education, for example? Or the God of work, success, money? How about coveting other people's stuff or their perceived easy life or their perfect teeth? How are we doing on that front? How about the slant we put on the story when we're describing how poorly we've been treated by our neighbor or somebody else in the church? It's not a blatant lie. It's just a subtle emphasis in our favor, perhaps. In Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, I don't know about you, but I always used to think that was really harsh. Now, though, I believe Jesus is making a very important point, and it is simply this. God is much more concerned with attitude than he is with appearance. We may look blameless. We may have stopped short of doing the deed. But what's our attitude, attitude to, in this instance, women? As we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's a whole study to be done on the state of the human heart, and we can't begin to do it justice here. But it seems to me that what counts most with God is that we accept his rule and reign in our lives 
and know that when we do wrong, when we sin, as we will, that we recognize it, own it, and tell him about it. That's what confession means. He knows anyway, but the telling is for our benefit, not his. It's an invitation to rip off the mask, and when we do, as chapter 1, verse 9 of this letter says, he will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness because he is faithful and just. What God asks us to do is to believe in his son and to keep short accounts with him. That I think I can manage. 1 John 1, 9, for the record, is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. There are other commands too, of course, which don't supersede the Exodus commandments, but which do expand on them. Two weeks ago, Toby mentioned how John's gospel is an excellent commentary on this letter. In chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, John writes this. Then they, the disciples, asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. Later in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Put simply, what God requires of us is that we believe that Jesus is who he, God, says he is. The outward working of that belief, that we love one another, will be proof to all that we are followers of Jesus, that we are Christians, a term which, as I'm sure we all know, means little Christs. In verse 4, John calls anyone who claims to know Jesus and yet is fundamentally unloving a liar. That is a very strong word. As Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, a liar is a person whose life doesn't match her words. How many of us are sick to death of Partygate? Why? Because the actions of prominent government officials don't appear to match their words. We understand that perfectly when it's applied in that context, and we need to understand it too in the context of what John writes here about us, followers of and believers in Jesus. We don't take kindly to hypocrisy in our politicians, and we should be just as intolerant of it in ourselves. It's important at this juncture to remind ourselves of the context of this letter. There were clearly people out there who were subtly but effectively distorting the truth, and that will doubtless be covered more extensively in weeks to come. John was clearly very exercised to remind his listeners and his subsequent readers to hold fast to what they knew to be true and not to be sidelined by persuasive but errant interpretation. So in spite of using forceful words like liar and later hate, this is not a finger-wagging exercise where we feel got at by God or where we alternatively look around and find fault with one another. 
rather. It is an invitation to rewind and to look again at what we know to be true. We maintain our own relationship with God by believing in the one he has sent and by living as Jesus did in verse 6. When we mess up, we admit it, and God extends his forgiveness and grace to us because he loves us. That looks like a pretty good deal to me. Moving on, at first glance, verses 7 and 8 may sound as if John was in need of a good night's sleep. I'm not writing a new command, it's an old one. But actually, come to think of it, no, no, it is a new one. Well, maybe it's both. My understanding is that the old command refers back to the very opening verse of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, described here as the Word, was with his Father and an equal part of the Godhead. The Word was God. Jesus, like God, is eternal and omnipresent. When Jesus was in his physical body, as we've seen, he gave his disciples a new command to love one another as he had loved them. The love they showed one another would be proof to any onlooker that they followed him. In this letter, John's listeners and readers know who Jesus is, and they're familiar with John's gospel too. As Toby pointed out a couple of weeks ago, they'll almost certainly know the new command in John 13. So when John says in one breath that he is not writing a new command and in the next says he is, what I believe he is doing is putting fresh emphasis on the new command. Let me give you a seemingly trivial, but I believe an important example of emphasis. Consider this sentence. I didn't kill your cat. Straightforward. Five simple words, nothing confusing about it. Now let's emphasize each word in turn. I didn't kill your cat. I didn't kill your cat. I didn't kill your cat. I maimed it, obviously. <laughs> I didn't kill your cat. <laughs> I didn't kill your cat. Your gerbil, on the other hand, snuffed it, I'm afraid, so. Each emphasis completely changes the meaning of the sentence. I believe all this has an important general application as to how we read the Bible, and I'll touch on that briefly in a minute. But as far as verse 8 is concerned, John is putting a different emphasis on Jesus' new command in John 13. He is encouraging them not simply to love Jesus, and to believe in him, which is, of course, key, but to understand that they, too, are now part of the gospel message. Non-believers will look not only to the person of Jesus, but also to his followers, how they behave, what they say, and particularly how they conduct themselves towards one another. Verse 8, it's truth, the gospel message is seen in him, and in you, Otherwise, in other words, in us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
That is one important role to be playing in God's kingdom. British ambassadors abroad are the Queen's representative in whichever country they're in. The nationals of that country look to the ambassador and her staff and judge the UK accordingly. It's an extraordinarily responsible position to occupy. So it is with us, the church. People will look at us, and if they know we're Christians, judge Jesus. I'll expand on this when we take a look at verses 9 to 11. But briefly, let's just consider how different emphases can affect our reading of Scripture. You don't have to have kicked around the kingdom for long to realize how differently the Bible is read between denominations, down the generations, between friends even. People can and do justify almost anything from the Bible. For centuries, Christians justified slavery with verses from the Bible, racism with verses from the Bible, the subjugation of women with verses from the Bible, all things which most Christians reject absolutely today, although some within the body of Christ seem to still struggle with the women issue. Moving on. Today, we're still doing it. Some Christians emphasize judgment above all else. Turn or burn, they say. Others, grace, yet others, obedience, submission, authority, usually male, the infallibility of scripture, and so on. And our emphases will affect our reading and our understanding of the Bible. How do we reconcile this? By claiming that those who disagree with us aren't real Christians? Or perhaps that they're nominal rather than truly committed? That they haven't yet grasped all that God has for them? Implying, of course, that we have, which is dangerous territory. The job of someone doing what I'm doing today, standing up here, in the extraordinarily privileged position of speaking to God's people about his word is not to tell people what to think. It's to teach and encourage people about how to think in the sure and certain knowledge that none of us has all the answers, whoever we may be. At the very end of the wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 13, another of my favorite verses coming up, I tend to try and squeeze them in wherever I can. <laughs> St. Paul writes, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully as I am fully known. Uncertainty, not knowing, is part of the deal. And uncomfortable, though it undoubtedly is, we must, as followers of Jesus, learn to live with it. Where this is relevant to us looking at this passage today is that in it, God seems to ask just two things of us which are non-negotiable. That we believe in Jesus who loves us and that we love one another in like vein. Simple, then. Easily done. Or maybe not, 
as verses 9 to 11 of this passage would seem to indicate. So let's look at them. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. The first thing to say is that brother or sister in this context means a fellow believer. I don't imagine it is therefore it means therefore that we are at liberty to hate our actual siblings, assuming they're not Christians, because my sense is that that would be somewhat literal and pedantic. But the verse is clear. Anyone who claims to be in the light, in other words, a follower of Jesus, and yet hates another follower of Jesus, has seriously missed the mark, as Jim put it last week. Later in this letter, John makes it clear that there are people who have left the church and who are now denying that Jesus is the Christ. And that comes in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 and following. My understanding is that these people are not the brothers and sisters of whom John is speaking in verses 9 to 11. That they have forfeited the right by denying Christ to call themselves such. So the reminder which John is giving in these verses is to those who are still in the Christian community which he is addressing regarding how they are actually behaving towards one another. We don't know what the divisions were about, but they clearly existed. Maybe there was a deal of self-justification going on, a lot of judgment, a certain amount of religious one-upmanship, all emanating possibly from the shock of people you were once in fellowship with walking off, claiming a more profound understanding of what the scriptures actually mean and denying Jesus in the process. Meanwhile, those people have sowed doubt and confusion among those who have remained in the light, but who have lost sight of the non-negotiables for the time being, and have instead got really het up about whether Adam had a belly button or not. We can and do get distracted from the main and the plain. As my daughter Rachel would say, quoting Disney's Beauty and the Beast, tale as old as time. Or if you prefer a biblical quotation, there is nothing new under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it. Now, obviously, all that is speculation. But what isn't speculation is what John has written so categorically. We cannot claim to love Jesus and walk in his light and also hate our brother or sister. It's not an option. Something has to give. Our hating our brother and sister or our relationship with God, we get to choose. John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement, used to say, your brother is never your enemy. According to a man called Glenn Schroeder, who worked very closely with him for 20 years, Wimber had an amazing ability to differ with someone theologically and yet fully embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ. Wimber, along with most other leaders in most Christian churches, had some seriously hateful behavior to deal with from fellow Christians. Some of the nastiest things ever said to Toby and me have come from Christians, sometimes from people who were once in fellowship with us 
right here in KV. I don't say this to elicit sympathy in the least. Sadly, it is a fact of leadership, and I suspect not simply of leadership in the church. So I can testify that sometimes when people have lied or passed their perception of events off as truth, that it can be a huge challenge not to hate your brother or sister, or at least not thoroughly to dislike them. But it is a challenge which we must win, and we must meet, or we risk forfeiting our relationship with Jesus. There are two further points to make here. The first is that although we are not, as Christians, permitted to hate any fellow believer, nor to refuse forgiveness to them, we don't have to hang out with them. Wimber had another saying. He had lots of sayings, actually. But this one I found very helpful, and it was simply this. Don't play with that dog. It bites. If we've been badly bitten in a relationship, forgiveness is not optional. But future relationship is. And we can choose whether we want to risk being bitten again, bearing in mind that the behavior of anyone else is never under our control. Only our own is. Is this a counsel of perfection then that John is offering us in these verses? Is it possible to walk in the light 24-7, always loving Jesus and all fellow Christians, whatever the circumstances? Well, no, obviously it isn't. What these verses offer is not a counsel of perfection, but a counsel of integrity and honest self-reflection. We must keep short accounts with God, but we won't do that effectively if we are unable to acknowledge our shortcomings or our sin because of guilt or shame or simply because of embarrassment. Romans 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is not an accusation. It's simply a statement of fact, and it applies to all of us, in which I find some comfort, don't you? I would love it if we were known as a community of people who love God and love one another, who are well aware that we will make mistakes and cause hurt to others on occasion, whether or not we mean to. I would love it if we were known as a community of believers who keep their own house in order without pointing out how much work needs to be done in other people's, who are honest before God, who are able to acknowledge our sin, confess it, pick ourselves up, dust ourselves down, and start all over again. All because God loves us, and our relationship with God is the thing that sustains every other relationship we have. This is what I hope um, we aspire to. And by God's grace and with his help, I do believe we can get there. Without his grace and help, frankly, we won't. Acknowledging our need for help is a strength, not a weakness. Jesus didn't die for superheroes, but for ordinary flawed, messy, contradictory people like us. And I, for one, am very grateful. Shall we stand and I'll pray?
Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can call you Father because we believe in him. Thank you that we are yours because we love him. Thank you that when we falter and stumble, you help us up. Thank you that when we are bereft, you comfort us. Thank you that when we come to you, you never reject us. Thank you for bothering with us when we can't be bothered with ourselves. We love you, Lord. Amen.